Aloha again, everyone. How was lunch? Everybody sleepy? Hawaii is 11 hours behind. You are not as sleepy as I am, so. Um, I'd like to talk to you again this afternoon uh, about uh, uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth and uh, our call to uh, participate in it, to enter into it, and to carry it, and to spread it, and make it manifest uh, here in our midst, in your churches. Uh, I just want to bless you as, as leaders um, of the kingdom manifestation on earth. Um, and, uh, and bless you in your legacy in the vineyard to really bring the kingdom uh, to a world that is hungry for it. Uh, just to kind of review, uh, we talked about uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth, the order of heaven on earth uh, yesterday a little bit when I spoke. Um, I like to think of it as bringing the order of heaven, right? Sickness is out of order in heaven. And so those of us who are, are able to manifest the order of heaven on earth, we're able to cure sicknesses in a manner that we describe as supernatural, although that's a funny word, right? Because what's natural, what's supernatural? Life itself is a supernatural gift, but, but that's how we think of it. Uh, in heaven, uh, everybody is familiar with the love and the character of God. So those of us who bring the order of heaven on earth are able to kind of manifest uh, the character and the love of God in the midst of people and to introduce them to living relationship with the living God and uh, so on and so forth um, in the vineyard movement manifesting the order of heaven on earth has always included those things that we call supernatural, right? Uh, the healing ministry, the prophetic ministry, the deliverance ministry are as um, Debbie and Steve spoke about last night, just, just raw, simple God encounters, right? A living God in living space being real uh, for people, and those sorts of simple personal encounters, manifest encounters, uh, encounters with the manifest God, have made a tremendous difference for so many of us, and that's how we find life, and one of our privileges as vineyard ministers is to multiply uh, those encounters. Anyway, what we're trying to do is bring the order of heaven to the chaos of the world. Are you with me? Give me an amen. Give me an aloha. Uh, in Hawaii, uh, you don't say amen, you, see, you say chihu. My wife will demonstrate. <laughs> just, to, just to let you know. Thank you. It's the afternoon session. And in the ministry of the order of heaven on earth, God partners with us to get things done. We talked about that a little bit yesterday as well. God doesn't just appear in the sky and evangelize the world. He makes us his, uh, his foot soldiers, his business partners. Uh, he gives the ministry to us. Who are the healers here today? You guys, right? Um, you are the prophets here today. It's you guys. And, uh, you are the manifestors of heaven. You are the heavenly order, as it turns out, on the earth. So uh, good luck with that. <laughs> <clears throat> I'm 
I want to talk directly uh, about doing supernatural ministry, about how important it is and about how to get it done this afternoon. I want to talk about not just how to move in power, but how to get more supernatural power in, in what you do. Um, this is kind of my, my meat and potatoes uh, talk, just as I think the main question isn't how to move in power, particularly for those of us who are vineyard veterans. It's not how to move in power. When the presence and power of God is with us, we all know what to do, right? The deeper and often more problematic question is when we're not experiencing a lot of that manifest presence and power of God, what do we do then, right? That's the, that's the question. That's the money question, as we say in America. Um, and if you are involved in Order of Heaven ministry, if you're involved in supernatural ministry at all, then maybe you have questions like this. Why don't miracles always happen when we pray for them? Charles talked about that a little bit in so many words uh, this morning, didn't he? Talked about it really well. Because uh, does God do miracles today or not? Is he a mir- so why not all the time? That's an interesting question. Why do some people seem to get more results from, you know, let's say praying for healing than other people do, you know? Um, is it because God loves some people more than others? Yes, yes. I'm God's favorite person on earth. You all are tied for second. It's my theology, I'm sticking with it. Uh, for those people who do, do get results, why don't they always get results? How many of you have, I don't know, say successfully healed somebody supernaturally? How many of you always succeed? You know, I, I would boast because I'm older than most of you. Um, I've probably uh, had as many divine healing experiences as most anybody in this room. I've succeeded more than most. And I certainly have failed more often than any of you. Um, what explains the variation, you know? You have to have some understanding of that if you are going to survive in supernatural ministry over the course of years. Do you need to be specially gifted from God to do supernatural ministry, to say, heal a sick person or to prophesy? Do you need the gift of healing in order to heal? Everybody say yes, no. All right, this is a sophisticated vineyard crowd, you know these answers. If you pray for a person to get healed and nothing happens, then what do you do then? If you try to cast out a demon and nothing happens, then what do you do then? Okay, these are the questions, right, that we need to answer in order to be insanely practical about these tools that the Lord has given us. So uh, in about 30 minutes, you're going to have the answer to all of these things, or at least my answer to all of these things, and you'll get to figure out whether you are satisfied with those answers or not. Um, but again, my theme is to be insanely practical as we talk about these things. I think uh, to uh, survive in supernatural ministry for any length of time, to excel at it, we need to understand the difference between uh, technique and power. A lot of times when we are trained in how to do ministry generally, but supernatural ministry in particular, we are taught techniques, we are taught models, we are taught, oh, let's just say a five-step healing model or something like that. It's really important because every, every miracle needs a method, right? So you have to have uh, some way of going about it. Um, but I don't think it is our technique that makes us successful in the ministries that we do, whether they be 
supernatural ministry or less supernatural ministry, whatever those things are. I think it's how much power we have when we do the techniques. How many different ways does Jesus heal people in Scripture? Well, he uses a different technique almost every time he heals somebody. Uh, Sometimes he just speaks a word, get up, walk. Sometimes he grabs Peter's mother-in-law by the hand and yanks her out of bed and says, go make me lunch. Um, He did, read it. Um, Sometimes he uses spit, sometimes he uses mud, sometimes he prophesies at a distance, your daughter is well, and it works. You know, sometimes he lays on hands, sometimes he doesn't, Uh, different technique. Uh, but always a tremendous amount of power. When I was uh, about 21 years old, um, before uh, Sonia and I were married, uh, she and I and a number of other friends piled in a car and we drove from San Francisco down to LA to Anaheim to go to a vineyard conference there and John Wimber was speaking, among others. I remember it was a great conference. Last night of the conference, uh, John was speaking from the pulpit, and in an indirect sort of way, he was speaking to these questions. It's like, how do you become powerful in power ministry? And this was the guy who had literally written the book on it at the time. And he said, in a very confessional sort of way, that struck me profoundly. Uh, he said, I used to think that in order to do the stuff, you know, that was a favorite phrase of his, in order to do the supernatural stuff, the miraculous stuff, All you needed to have was a technique, and to spread it in the vineyard, all we needed to do was to teach people a model. And now, he said, I realize that that's not the case, that it's not just teaching people a model for doing things. And then he paused, and I could almost see him kind of, you know, struggling with this. This was a question that he was working through at the the time. He said... "Um, I understand how much anointing the vineyard has been given, uh, and that not everybody has the same anointing. So I am grateful to God that we have the anointing to do these things, was how he put it. So the power comes with the anointing from God. And I was sitting out there in the crowd. Uh, we were in the front rows that night, and, um, and I remember thinking to myself, that answer stinks. I was completely dissatisfied with it. Um, I refuse to think that if you have God's anointing, you can do this stuff. But if you don't have God's anointing, you can't. Like, there's got to be more to it. No. What I want to know is how do you get the anointing? Right? Because that that's what I want. How do you get it if you don't have it? Because then more than anything else in life at that moment, I wanted that. I wanted to be able to spread and to participate and to manifest the kingdom that was giving me such life that I was seeing giving people life all around me. And I don't like that word anointing. That's one of those Christian-y words that gets used so often that it means nothing. So what does that mean anyway, you know? Uh, and, and I started wrestling with these questions uh, then and there, and I've been uh, wrestling with them ever since. When I talk to um, leaders from supernatural churches, the question I, I, I end up talking about most is not, again, 
what we do with power. It's what we do when we don't have enough power. I think one of the things that you see in Christian history um, is, well, throughout Christian history, there is always some segment of the church that is moving in great power. And there's always some segment of the church that is not. And so we see these patterns of, I don't know what you're going to call it, renewal, say, or revival. And then there is renewal in the church. There is almost always all of these so-called supernatural manifestations that come with it. It's hard to always have the power. It's hard to always move in supernatural ministry. It is so hard that if there's another way to do ministry successfully, we tend to gravitate toward that. And I think you see that in church history a lot. The church uh, doesn't like to be supernatural because it's weird and it's difficult and it's sacrificial. And then when we lose it, we miss it. And the vineyard has been around long enough now that you know, there was a big pulse in the early days and then many of us kind of lost it and then we get hungry for it and then we come to conferences like this to get restoked, and maybe you have an experience with God here. But what if you're off on, I don't know, let's say your own remote island in the middle of the Pacific? I'm speaking theoretically. <laughs> you're literally on an island by yourself, right? And how do you get the fire started? How do you get the anointing? All right, that's the question. And I know many of you are there. I know many of you are hungering for some level of power and manifestation that you used to have. I know many of you are thinking about, well, how do you, how do you capture what was lost? Do you just have to sit around and wait until God does it again? I don't think so. I think that's bad theology. I think the correct theology is God partners with us to get things done. There are things that we can do to grow in power and manifestation. Are you following me so far? Believe it or not, that's all introduction. I'm like through half my time, but um, the question is how to get more power. And I'm really comforted when I read the Bible stories or even the Jesus stories that even the great ones had to do work to get more power. And I point to Jesus himself. Um, in Luke chapter three, uh, there is contained uh, the story of Jesus's baptism, very famous story, uh, you know, appears in multiple gospels. He goes out to John the Baptist. He gets dunked in the Jordan River, and he comes up. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit falls on him. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized with the Holy Spirit. In that particular instance, it came with a, an apparition, maybe looked like a dove, some kind of bird following on him. You know, at least one account, there's the Lord speaks uh, from heaven. He gets filled with the Spirit at that moment. And then the Spirit immediately leads him out into the wilderness. And he spends six weeks out there uh, being tempted, working out, right? He fasts for 40 days. He does all of that stuff, um, faces down the devil. And then in Luke chapter 4, he returns to Galilee. In fact, it says, and he returned to Galilee in power. And that always has struck me that in Luke chapter 3, he's filled with the Spirit, but he's not filled with power until Luke chapter 4. 
And what happened in the interval? The dude worked out. I mean, he went to the gym, right? He fasted, he prayed, he faced down temptation, he was obedient. He did all of that stuff. And then when he came back, he was flowing, right? It's like the Holy Spirit gave him the quantity of power, but he wasn't flowing in it appropriately until he did the work. The miracle work is the phrase that I often use. And then he came back and he began his public ministry. Went to the synagogue, cast out a demon, healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law, and he was off and running. So there's a way to partner with God to get more power as the good and the comforting uh, news. Now, uh, I've gone through you know, all the scriptures and walked with the Lord in this uh, for years of my life, and I've come up with a little way of organizing my thoughts, our you know, biblical lessons, Jesus' lessons about how to grow in power. And I've organized those things into a, a little device that I call the power equation, uh, which is, uh, many of you I, I know are familiar with this, you've read the book, and I'm always embarrassed about the name, the power equation, because it, to me it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like something that you see on a late night infomercial on television, you know, power equation to lose weight and get rich at home, you know, it's, it sounds a little bit cheesy. And nobody needs me to tell you that if you draw closer to God, you'll flow in his power better, which is sort of the main idea. But these are some ways uh, that I've developed to think about it. There's some elements that I think are useful to understand uh, if you want to get the power started, get it flowing uh, in, in your life, your ministry, your church, your small group. So the power equation. And the power equation is this. We probably have a slide. Authority plus gifting plus faith plus consecration equals power. And I will unpack all of those elements here quickly in the rest of the talk today. Um, so you got four elements there on the left, authority, gifting, faith, and consecration. And if you score well in those elements, if you have high values in those things, then you'll have lots of power. If you score low, then you'll have low power because the one thing I remember from algebra in high school is that the stuff on the left equals the stuff on the right. That's called an equation, people. Write it down. That's an equation. Yeah. I did not major in mathematics, but I remember that much. I will do you one better. This is what you call a multivariable equation. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah because it has more than one element in it. You got authority, you got gifting, you got faith, you got consecration. And the good news there is that if you score really high in one of the elements, but low in the other element, you can still pull off the miracle because all of these things are additive, right? So let's say you're not gifted in healing, but you have a tremendous amount of faith, you might still pull off the miracle. Uh, depending on how much power is needed. Some miracles are tougher than others. Jesus said, when the disciples failed to cast the demon out of the epileptic boy in Mark 9, well, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. What kind? Well, the tough kind, right? They'd cast out many demons by then, but sometimes it's tougher than others. You need a little more power for this, a little more juice. So, you know, a little prayer and fasting wouldn't hurt you guys. It's kind of how the conversation went, I think. Um, you know, so you don't have to be perfect in everything. You don't have to be super gifted in anything. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
but that's, that's basically the idea. Um, it's not one variable, it's several. There are pop theologies out there, like uh, sometimes it's called faith theology or name it, claim it theology or word theology, which is, uh, hey, if you have enough faith, you can move a mountain. And if you have enough faith, you can do any miracle. You know, you can heal any sickness. So it's a monovariable explanation. That is faith. It's all about faith, you know. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about that. And I recall that sometimes in the Gospels, um, dead people get resurrected. So how much faith does a dead person have? Not much doubt. but not a ton of faith. Well, you know, maybe it's not the person receiving the miracle. Maybe it's the person giving the miracle. Maybe it's the miracle worker whose faith counts. If anybody in the Gospels had perfect faith, who was it? The answer is always Jesus or prayer. You should have learned this. (laughs) You should have learned this by now. But when Jesus went to his hometown, even he could do no miracles there, and he was astonished at their lack of faith, is what the account says. So even perfect faith in the form of Jesus, the minister, could not pull off the miracles when confronted with an atmosphere of poor faith. So maybe faith is additive, and I think that's true. I think the faith to do miracles here today is my faith plus all of your faiths added together. Um, and, but then I think about that. And like, you know, I'm a collector of obscure Bible verses, and in 2 Kings chapter 13, there's a story about uh, well, it's sort of indirectly about Elisha. You know, Elisha, the greatest miracle-working prophet of the Old Testament, uh, by account, did 26 miracles. I know this because Elijah uh, only did 13, because Elisha had the double portion. It kind of works out mathematically in the Bible. I have way too much time in my hands. I just <laughs> figure these things out. One, two. Um, So the story is, uh, in that chapter, Elisha, the greatest miracle-working prophet of the Old Testament, has died of a disease, which is interesting. And he's in a a tomb, a hole in the rock, and uh, the scene opens on the graveyard, and some uh, some guys are out there digging a new grave for a newly dead guy, and some Moabite raiders come galloping over the horizon. The Moabites used to raid Israel and steal their crops during the harvest season. The gravediggers panic. They pick up the newly dead guy, and instead of putting him in a new grave, they just throw him into Elisha's hole. And do you know this story? When the dead body hits Elisha's bones the newly dead guy comes to life. So the question is, whose faith was that? (laughs) Right? Is it like the dead guys or the other dead guys? That's an interesting (laughs) ministry time right there. Which just sort of, you know, it schools me and it says there's something else going on, right? You wanna have simple explanations, but you don't wanna have simplistic explanations. Uh, And so there's always something else going on. All right, so this power equation thing is my best attempt to kind of organize what Scripture says about these things. And I share this with you. And I know some of you read it in the book, but maybe I can offer a few uh, personal observations that will make it click and helpful to you as you try to grow in more power to do kingdom stuff wherever you are in your life and your ministry. So let's start start with uh, authority. The idea is how do you get more of these things, right? 
these things go up and down. So how do you get more authority? Well, when I use the word authority, what I'm talking about is the sort of authority like is mentioned in Luke 10 or Matthew 10. When Jesus sends out his disciples without him to spread the kingdom around Israel for the first time on their own, the account says that he gave them authority over all um, matter of unclean spirits and all diseases. Uh, and you know the story. The disciples went out, uh, ministered without him uh, in pairs. And then when they came back, like in Luke uh, 10, verse 17, they said, Lord, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Right? They kind of borrowed uh, from the authority of Jesus' name, and all the demons were scared of them and stuff like that. Well, what was going on there exactly? To my mind, it sounds like maybe the military. If you're a, if you're a private, a rank private in the military, and you go to the front lines and you say, uh, everybody, charge into battle. Who's going to listen to you? Well, nobody. You're a private. You're just, you're just a grunt. Uh, um, but if you get called into headquarters and the general says, go tell the troops to charge into battle, he writes down his order and signs his name, and then you carry that to the front lines and you say, okay, everybody, it's time to go, charge, in the name of the general. Who's gonna listen to you? Well, then everybody will, provided that the order you're giving is in keeping with the order the general gave you, right? And that's kind of how it works in the kingdom of God. If you are obeying the orders of your general, Christ, then you have the authority of those orders at your disposal. That's a summary of sort of the Bible teaching on this. So really, what authority is, is a measure of your obedience to Christ. Are you fulfilling the orders that Christ has given you? And we have standing orders. We have standing orders to preach that the kingdom of heaven is near. We have standing orders to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons. Freely you receive this stuff, so freely you should give it. Those are standing orders. And if we move in obedience to those orders, we will actually have a great deal of authority in the world. If you are an obedient person, you are an authoritative person. If you are a disobedient person, it compromises your authority. And this is where sin really gets us. You know, what drives me to my knees in repentance most of the time is not my inner sense of righteousness. It's when I fail to heal the sick little girl or something like that. And then I, like, I feel my flesh in those moments, you know, not in a guilt-ridden sort of way, but in a kind of a missed opportunity sort of way. You know, it's like, Lord, you know, help me to obey better. And one of the things I like to do is to seek personal marching orders every morning. Lord, what should I do today? Who should I call? What should I try? You know, and if the Lord gives you a prophetic word to do something, do it, because that's an opportunity to experience more power than you've experienced before. Every command is an opportunity to experience a boost in power. Did you know that? There you go. Uh, when you... Uh, uh, Wield the name of Jesus without being obedient to Jesus. Sometimes it doesn't go very well. My favorite story about this is the seven sons of Sceva from like Acts chapter 19. That's a great story, right? It's a great story for 10-year-old boys. Um, the seven sons of Sceva are running around Ephesus where Paul has been ministering. 
uh, and they're mimicking Paul, and they're casting out demons, and apparently it's working at least some of the time. They say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out, and the demons listen to them. Apparently, it's sort of implied, but one day they come up against a tough demon, and, and the demon responds through the demonized fellow. Um, Jesus I know, and Paul I've heard about, but who are you? And then it says, and the demoniac jumped upon them and gave them such a beating that they ran out in the street naked and bleeding. That's a great story. That is a great story, right? That's a Sunday school level story right there. Every little boy loves it. That's our Sunday school. We have weird kids. Um, All right, so that's where obedience comes in. That's where obedience comes in. And gifting comes in like this. And you guys are vineyardites, so you understand this better than most, I think. But when the Lord gives you a gift, then you have more power in that ministry area than you would be other than you would have otherwise. Right? Everybody in here can sing. I was watching during worship time, but if I had you stand up here and sing a solo, we'd we would understand quickly who's gifted and who is not gifted. <laughs> right? You can do it. But some of you will be able to do it at a higher level with greater fluency and with more ease. And that's how spiritual gifts work. If you have the gift of healing, you'll be able to heal sick people really easily. If you have the gift of prophecy, then you'll just have an easier time of it. So the question is, if you want to do some particular ministry uh, and you need more gifting, you would like to have more power through gifting. How do you get more gifting than you have right now? Practice. Ask God for the gift. Uh, great answers. You know, you could do that. Uh, Paul says, eagerly desire the greater gift, by which I think he means desire the one that's going to be most useful for you in whatever context you're in. If you work in a hospital, get the gift of healing. If you work in a, a high school, get the gift of teaching, you know, something like that. So you can ask God for it, but there's a lazier way, and so it's my preferred way. <laughs> if I don't have the gift of healing, but John does... On my way to the hospital, I go and I grab John and I bring him with me, right? That's lazy. That's wonderful. And it's the way I exploit my brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God. Um, But teamwork counts, right? And that's why we all have different gifts. It's so that we all need each other. And we all have to love each other, you know? Uh, So... Figure out what your gift is. Figure out what the gifts are, the people around you. Who's good at what? And then work together, work in love and grace. And that's how the body of Christ works. That's like 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. So that's how your gifting goes up. How does your faith go up? Um, Well, again, it's about the faith environment, right? And Jesus in his hometown had a bad environment, how do you improve your faith environment? Um, one of my favorite stories on this topic comes from Acts chapter 14. This is a story about Paul in Lystra, um, sort of a city in like an Asia Minor sort of. And, and um, Paul and his cohort have just arrived in the city. And Paul, as is his custom, is standing on the street corner and he starts speaking and a crowd gathers And the account says in verse 8 of that chapter, as Paul was speaking, there was a man in the crowd who was lame from birth and who had never walked. Paul looked at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and said, stand up and walk. At that, the man stood up and walked, caused a great uproar in the city. Um, So... My question is, how did that man, who had never heard anything about Jesus before that day, had been lame from birth and had never walked, 
How is it that he suddenly had faith to be healed? Such that Paul could look at him and see it. And believe me, if you do a lot of supernatural ministry, you learn to see faith in people. Right? How did that guy develop faith? All we know about him was that he was listening to Paul, which begs the question, what in the world was Paul saying that made lame people suddenly believe they could walk? That's a good sermon. So what do you think Paul was, was talking about? Yeah, again, the answer is always Jesus or prayer. And I think he probably was talking about Jesus, but just to cut to the chase, I'm very sure that in talking about Jesus, Paul was telling stories about folks getting healed because that's the only way that that guy would have put two and two together and realized, oh, Paul was probably saying, hey, you know, just, just last week we were down the coast at another city and we saw people get healed because when you follow Jesus, you get to move in the power that Jesus moved in. It's one of the gifts that he gives to his followers and he was kind of telling how the kingdom works. And he was saying it with, you know, such authority, such believability, such honesty and authenticity that this lame guy thought to himself, I believe that. And as soon as he did, Paul, a sensitive power minister, could see it. He said, let's, let's do some business here. Stand up, you know. And he moved with lots of authority. Um, and, and it worked. Stories. 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 I tell people who have never done a healing service in their church, do one on a Sunday. Give a whole Sunday to do it. Invite all of your neighbors, friends, and coworkers. But before you do that, do some healings on a smaller level so that you get a few testimonies. And then you open your healing service with some testimonies. They will have the virtue of being true. And true testimonies always release faith. Always. Every time. It's the greatest way to build your faith environment. You start the fire with kindling. And then pretty soon you can throw on the big logs, and then pretty soon you have a bonfire. And uh, we see that a lot in Scripture. That's faith. Even Jesus in his hometown, in Mark 6, could do no miracles due to lack of faith. So you have to be sensitive to the environment of faith in which you minister. You have to build a culture of try in your church, right, if you want this stuff to be easy. It takes some work. We partner with God to get things done, right? It's not just all on God. He does it or he doesn't. You know, you have to put some work in it. And that is a comfort and also a bit of a burden uh, for me to know that. And then finally, there's this thing called consecration. This is the last one. Consecration is um, a fancy word. We don't use it a lot anymore. I mean, literally, it means, you know, Consecration, con, with, secretion, sacrifice, with sacrifice, or really literally with blood. You know, that's where it comes from. And uh, the idea here is, is sacrifice. And the principle is this. Whatever you sacrifice to God, he makes powerful for you. Whatever you sacrifice to God, he makes powerful for you. If you sacrifice an hour in prayer to the Lord, an hour in worship to the Lord, that is a powerful time for you, right? And that will manifest his power in your life. Um, there are uh, many young people here, unmarried, who have consecrated their sexuality to God. 
right? Right now you're sacrificing it to the Lord. You're laying it on the altar. You're not using it. It's his. It is set aside, right? One of the great disservices that we do in our culture today is that we've forgotten you know, the power of the sacrifice of celibacy, but it, un- it unleashes tremendous power for you, particularly in our uh, sexually fallen culture today. You become amazing, powerful people uh, when you live with uh, sexual sacrifice. Um, I always feel like saying that because I don't think you hear it enough, and it's hard enough to walk well in that area, uh, but It doesn't just make you righteous. It makes you powerful. It makes you extraordinary. It makes you a kingdom minister, an agent of order on the earth. I'll get off that soapbox now. But good on you. Again, in Mark Mark 9, uh, you know the story. We'll go through it here in a second. That's how we'll end. Uh, Mark chapter 9, my favorite power ministry passage in all of Scripture. Um. The disciples uh, are faced with uh, an epileptic boy. We, we diagnose him as epilepsy. He goes into all sorts of seizures and fits. Who has a demon. They can't cast out the demon. Jesus shows up, and he casts it out. And then when they get him alone, his disciples say, why couldn't we do it? Have you ever been surprised when you couldn't pull off the miracle? But that was, you know, that was where they were. They had a, had a lot of success previously. Um, but now they were experiencing less power and the variation confused them. And then Jesus said, well, this kind only comes out with prayer and fasting. You needed to go to the gym. You needed to spend some time in the wilderness. You needed to work out uh, in order to, to get the power uh, back up. Uh, sacrifice is a big thing. Consecration is a big thing. And your sacrifices are never without virtue. They are never worthless particularly if you are a minister of power. I need to tell you that so that you don't forget. This is one of the ways that we become powerful. This is one of the ways that we start fires in our churches and our small groups. We sacrifice, and it opens the flow. It opens the flow. Don't forget that. So let's go through Mark 9 really quick. And what I want to do is just read this passage as an example of how Jesus himself worked the problem. This is a story about Jesus encountering an environment that lacked sufficient power. And what we see in this story is that Jesus himself works it in an insanely practical way. He does the miracle work such that by the end of the story, he feels he has what he needs, he does the ministry, and it works. Super practical story. Uh, Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. Uh, The setup here is that Jesus, James, John, Peter have been on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they come down to the valley, and the other disciples are in a crowd having failed to pull off a miracle. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So what's the faith environment here? Bad, bad. There's a lot of tumult. There's some uh, cultural convulsion. I've totally misused that phrase, but it's a cool phrase, so I'm going to try and work it into my teachings from now on. Credit to Ed. 
As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. I think overwhelmed with wonder, perhaps, because they maybe had seen the lights on top of the mountain of transfiguration. I'm not sure. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Everybody knows it's a demon. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. I love the stories of failure because you always learn more from those stories, right? They couldn't do it. There's a problem here. We don't have the power we used to have. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? which is just a comment on how important it is to be seeker-sensitive <laughs> anytime we do ministry. That word generation literally means like people. You unbelieving people, you frustrate me so much. I love this Jesus. This is like, that's like my favorite Jesus pretty much. It's like that Jesus I identify with. It's like, yo, I got you. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Come on, senior pastors, give me an amen. Give me a chew. Come on, come on. We've all been here, right? I love this story, right? It is so insanely practical. Bring the boy to me. What's going on there? Well, think like a, a miracle worker. Think in, like in terms of the power equation. What's going on there is Jesus is separating the boy from the bad faith environment. Let's get him away from that problematic crowd. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Demons don't like Jesus. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? How much power do I need? Super practical. From childhood, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. I mean, if I could get a little belief here, maybe I could do the miracle. If you believed, if you believed, and Jesus is provoking this father in a really helpful way. Genius, Jesus is a genius people manager. And... Uh, Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Can I get an amen there? Amen. Great prayer. What we're trying to do is to get our unbelief to triumph over, or get our belief to triumph over our unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him. Never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed and violently, came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that they said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet. He stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we do that? And he replied, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. A little consecration would have helped. Do you see it now? Even the great ones worked it. They worked it. There is a way forward. There is a way. And I bless you in Jesus' name as miracle workers. Workers. It's your calling. It's your calling to work it up. It's your calling to do the things of the kingdom, to do the things of partnering with God that releases the supernatural order of heaven on earth. That's what you're about. 
It is hard going oftentimes because it is entirely otherworldly. It is entirely countercultural. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't get the fruit immediately that you want. I had, on a recent Sunday, I had an experience in which a woman came up to me. She had been at a, we do these Holy Spirit retreats. We just gather people, including many non-believers, and we put our hands on them. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come. And they often experience the power of the Holy Spirit there. And many of them come to faith that way, you know, experiencing the power of God. They speak in tongues, and they're like, explain this to me. And we say, well, that's Jesus. We give them the gospel, and they're like, cool. Um, and so one of these women walked up and said, I just, I love this place. I love what's happened. You know, she was at the Holy Spirit. She said, I never knew there was a God like that. That same Sunday, uh, this kid came up to me with his mom. He had been coming to church for a few weeks. He was an unbeliever that came because one of our little girls, little girls, 20-somethings, went to a bar and invited him to church. She was cute. He came. <laughs> had some profound experiences. Brought his mom. Uh, I said, well, since you're in front of me, I'll prophesy to you. I prophesied some accurate words of knowledge to him. He got freaked out, literally ran from the church and hasn't been back. (laughs) Sometimes it works, sometimes not so much, but I think it's the right thing to do. It has its own unique challenges. But that's who you are. And I think that's the stuff that leads to the God encounters that we all love so much.